Welcome to the Brandon New Podcast. I'm your host, Carly Lyon, and I'm dedicated to helping individuals elevate their personal brand, proactively shape their reputation, and attract the life and career they dream of. I interview leading creative professionals, communication experts, and social media gurus in a bid to uncover practical and cutting-edge personal branding strategies for you to apply. All sessions are recorded in front of a real audience asking real questions. If you want to learn more, please feel free to visit my website, carlylion.com, and discover other ways we can work together. For now, let's start the class. Hi, guys. Welcome to the brand new podcast. My name is Carly Lyon, and I like to describe myself as a former international personal publicist turned personal branding coach. And I created this show to ultimately help find you the best tips, tools, and strategies to help you shape, manage, and elevate your personal brand and influence the way you put yourself out there and importantly, encourage you to put yourself out there. Today, I have to say the gentleman that I'm about to interview, I'm feeling quite emotional about it because If there's been one individual who has ultimately shaped my career journey, my life in general, it would have to be Dr. John Demartini. So the fact that I am here today with this opportunity to to talk to him, to share his work, to introduce to some of you who he is, and then, of course, for many of you who have already heard of him, just for you to hear even more of his amazing work. So for those of you who haven't necessarily heard of Dr. John Demartini, let me just read out his formal bio so you get just a little snapshot of what this incredible man has achieved. So Dr. John Demartini is a world-leading human behavior specialist, researcher, best-selling author, educator, and the founder of the Demartini Method, a revolutionary tool in modern psychology, which we will absolutely be talking about today. He has authored 43 books that have been translated into 40 different languages and presented his insights and shared the stage with some phenomenal individuals, including Sir Richard Branson and Deepak Chopra. There isn't a human that I've ever met that has researched and read as many books and knows as much as Dr. John Demartini. So without further ado, John, welcome and thank you. Well, thank you. By the way, I just got to finish my uh, right two minutes before I got on. I just finished another book. <laughs> of course you did. This is, I just before we started this conversation, you, because it's quite late where you are, you said that you delegate sleep. <laughs> and that's something <laughs> I remember about you. And and again, what I haven't mentioned, I obviously mentioned that you have been such an influence in my life. But you're also my first PR client who yeah. had the, the joy of representing for nearly eight years. So that's, yeah. I remember the, the moment we chatted at the Circular K after going to that little restaurant there on the edge of the Circular K. Yeah. And uh, I remember that very well. Oh, well, so do I. So do I. I remember it very fondly. So, John, I would like, you've got such a big story. I've heard it many times. It's such an inspiring story. And I know 
We're here today to talk about helping individuals break through that fear of criticism, rejection and judgment. But before we even get to any of those topics, I want you to give the listeners a bit of a snapshot into how you got into the path you're on today in terms of human behavior and, of course, the Martini method, which we will talk about in a moment as well. Oh, gosh, the, the, the brief one, the brief version. <laughs> yeah, the abridged version, exactly. Um, I was born in Houston, Texas in 1954. I'll be 69 in a few months. I had a speech impediment and some learning problems and also had a turned in arm and leg, kind of a deformity of my arm and leg. So I had a bit of a challenge at the beginning. By the time I got to first grade, my teacher said I would, in front of my parents, I'm afraid your son's not going to be able to read. He's not going to be able to write effectively, not be able to communicate effectively. Probably won't go very far in life or amount to much. I made it through elementary school with the help of the smartest kids by asking questions, which I'm known for today, asking questions. I'm a firm believer that anything in your life you can't say thank you for is baggage. Anything you can say thank you for is fuel. And those were the perfect events for me to have my journey be catalyzed. I left school, well, left home at 13. Try to continue school till 14, dropped out of school, left for the beaches, <laughs> and became a surf bum, hippie surfer bum, um, panhandling money and hitchhiking and that kind of stuff, surfing every day. I hitchhiked out to California when I was 14, down into Mexico when I was 14. 15, I made my way over to Hawaii. I stayed on the North Shore of Oahu, where the nice big waves were and learn how to surf and big ride big waves i nearly died at 17 and in the recovery of that i was led to a health food store and a little yoga class by paul Sebrag, where he was a guest speaker the woman yogi but she introduced him as a guest speaker that night i never went to class but something led me to this class and in one night this one man in one hour really got to me he spoke in a way that I've always dreamed of speaking to other people. He spoke in a way that made me believe that I could overcome my learning problems and someday become intelligent. And that night I saw a dream and a vision. And I know that nobody can see this because we're, we're an audio podcast, although you might be able to give this to him in an image. Mm. I'm going to share this picture with you because you may remember seeing this. I don't know. But this is a picture of what went on in my mind. Oh, wow. Let's see if I can. I'm not sure how that's why that's. So it's an image of you. Where are you standing there? I'm standing on a balcony in front of a million people overlooking a square. It's just not a place in the world. But in the background is an iconic building from every major city around the world. Oh my God. Amazing. That's an so this, someone this is the, this is the image I saw when I was 17. It was painted about 12 years ago. It sits in my office um, in Houston, Texas. And so that was the dream I had to travel the world, step foot in every country on the face of the earth 
and, you know, learn how to speak and teach and become a teacher in my life. So that's what happened to me that night. And yeah, my life changed. The trajectory of my life changed. I ended up going and picking up my first book in my life that I ever read, tried to read, uh, Chico's Organic Gardening and Natural Living. <laughs> and how old were you at that stage? You were 17 at that stage, right? I was about a week before my 18th birthday. Well, the book I got, the night I met him, I was uh, November 18th, is a week before my birthday. But by the time I got to the book, it was about 18, right around my birthday. Wow. And I picked up this book that there was a hippie on the front cover that looked like me. And I thought if that friggin' guy could write the book, I bet I could read it. So I went through this book. I didn't really read it. I just looked at the pictures. But that was the first time I ever went through a book and just looked at every page. And that was the beginning of a journey of trying to go back and learn how to read and go back to school. And, and I tried to go back to school after taking a GED, a high school equivalency test, and miraculously passing this thing. But I ended up failing my first class in, in, in school when I went back. And I was really distraught. I really thought, I don't have what it takes. All I could hear is my first grade teacher saying he'll never read, he'll never write and things. Mm. And I remember sitting curled up in a fetal position in my living room in my parents' house when I failed that first test, trying to go back to school. I got a 27. I need a 72 to pass. Mm. I thought, wow, this is way down below where everybody else was. Everybody else was above 75, and I was down at 27. And I remember sitting there just crying. And my mom had been shopping and she came home and she saw me crying and said, what happened, son? Mm. I said, mom, I, I, I failed the test. I guess I don't have what it takes. I guess I'll never be able to read or write. I won't be able to communicate effectively. And she paused and she said something a moment later that only a mom could say. She said, she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, son, whether you become a great teacher and philosopher and travel the world like you dream, or whether you go back and ride big waves on the North Shore and ride as a surfer, or return to the streets and panhandle as a bum like you've done, I just want to let you know that your father and I are going to love you no matter what. We just love you. And that moment, her love and her presence and her certainty and her gratitude were just so authentic. And my hand went into a fist. I looked up and I saw that picture that I just showed you in my mind. And I said to myself, I'm going to mask this thing called reading and studying and learning. I'm going to mask this thing called teaching and philosophy. And, and I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance. I'm going to pay whatever price to give my service of love across the planet. I'm not going to let any human being on the face of the earth stop me now, not even myself. I got up and hugged my mom and went to my room and I locked myself in my room and I got a Funk and Wagnall's dictionary out. And I started reading and memorizing 30 words a day. And my mom would test me on 30 words a day. I, I had to, I, what I did is I spelled it out 20 times. I recited it 20 times. I put it into a sentence and we wrote out the sentence 20 times. And I just took every single word and I did that until I could recite the meaning of the word, the spelling into my mom. And she would test me on 30 words a day. And I grew my vocabulary 30 words a day until in a couple of years, I had 20,000 words in my head. And I was now excelling in school. And I turned my life around. It was just sheer, no turning back moment yeah. where there's no option. There's no option. I, I, if there's anybody listening, if yeah. you want to go out and do something that's meaningful and inspiring in your life, 
capture something so captivating and inspiring in your life that's so high on your value that you don't let anything on the planet stop you from it. When you have a no turning back system, it's destined. So when you had that vision, you saw yourself up on that podium, that, that balcony overlooking and seeing a million people. And But did you know what you wanted to talk about or did you just know you wanted to touch people's lives? Well, both. But what came out of my mind at night was the power of healing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just it was the power you have inside to heal. And I think it was probably... Was that what Paul was talking about? Do you remember exactly what he was talking about? Yeah, no, he he was talking about that night. I mean, he was a longevitist and a faster and a nutritional, mm-hmm. you know, health enthusiast. He was a, he used to go around the world on crusades for health and well-being. Mm-hmm. But what he talked about that night was that we have a body, we have a mind, and we have a soul, and the body must be directed by the mind, and mind must be guided by the soul to maximize your awareness potential. Mm. And that you want to set goals for yourself, your family, your community, your city, your state, your nation, your world for 100 to 120 years. And that what you think about, what you visualize, what you affirm, what you feel, what you write about, what you take actions on, become your destiny Mm. and take command of those things. And to this day, I still utilize some of the things he taught me that very night. So I, that was a very life-changing trajectory changer. Mm. And we have to all put this in perspective and appreciate the things you're talking about, even the word healing. 50 years ago, this was really on the edge, right? Now we we talk about mindfulness, we talk about healing, self-help has become, you know, just this huge, you know, where it used to be this kind of weird on the edge topic, it's now at the forefront of all of our minds. So you really, you know, I often, when I refer to you, I do refer to you as a pioneer because you were part of that group of speakers, thought leaders that pushed that conversation, but it wasn't a popular topic at that time, right? No, it wasn't. Carly, I, I was, because of Paul Bragg, what he said, I carried bottled water with me in 1972 and three. <laughs> I didn't even know it was available then in 1963. <laughs> well, we, the bottle was a big one-gallon distilled water bottle, and then we found this little plastic see-through uh, plastic bottle that probably wasn't the healthiest thing. But I used to fill that up, and then the car had this gallon water container, and I would pour it and fill it and then go back to class. Thank so you. I was carrying around bottled water before bottled water was a common thing you carried around. People thought it was a freak. Pioneer, pioneer. So fast forward to today, and I've got here one of the stats is that, and I believe this because I have seen you in a workshop while the participants are working on something. I've seen you speed read a whole book because it's it's a general practice. Participants bring their book to your workshops to you know to have you read. You have now read up to thirty thousand books, and you do have quite a how yeah, it's 30,000, nearly 800 now. So I'm, I'm still keeping record of it. And uh, <laughs> so it'll, it'll be three, it's probably 31,000 probably before the end of the year. And and what I want to say to that, just so everyone who's listening really gets that that would be an absolute number. You have reams, these huge folders and documents. You, 
unlike anyone I've ever known or met, have recorded every day of your life. How many people you've reached, you know, the workshops you've taken, the countries you've gone to. So when you say that you've read 30,000, sorry, what was the number? About 30,000, the exact number I could pull up right now, but I've got it because I just updated yeah. it. And uh, But it's 30,000, nearly 800 books. I mean, so incredible. So, so incredible. So just I think any parent listening to to this story really, and, and no matter how many times I hear your story, John, I, I still get moved and touched by it. So, again, just coming back to everyone who's listening, just remember no matter how many times you tell your story, people will hear a different thing every time, which I absolutely do with, with John's story. Now, when we talk about healing and the work that you've done and how that's contributed to healing people's lives, we can't not talk about your method, the Demartini method, which way back when, when we first started working together, was called the quantum collapse process. Yes. I absolutely put it down to this particular methodology changed the way that I see the world, the way that I experience the world. And I'm not I'm not overstating that. It really is revolutionary. And anyone listening, you have to look up John's work. If you can get to the Breakthrough Experience, go to it. I've obviously attended many times in the years that I represented you. If I had to sum up the Demartini method, to me what it is is it's an experiential process where you absolutely in no uncertain terms experience the truth that there is no good without bad light without dark support without challenge but you actually you physiologically experience that how would you explain the demartini method well it keeps evolving it uh it, it, it's and then evolved. It's it's now site A B C D E F G H. It's 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 pretty evolved now. There's nearly eighty columns to it, but yeah. um, but I I considered it when I was eighteen years old. Can I tell a little story on this? Yeah, of course. When I, when I was eighteen years old, Paul. When I was seventeen years old, right at eighteen, Paul Bragg said. When I started studying with him, because the next day and for the next three weeks, I studied with him every day. Mm. I went to meet with this guy on the other side of the island just to learn from him. And when he finally left Hawaii and was leaving the night or the, the morning that I was there with him on the last time, I told him I, I, I had learning problems and I had reading problems. Mm. And is there anything he could do to help me overcome that? And he said... That's not a problem. I want you to say this one statement to yourself every single day and never miss a day for the rest of your life saying it. I said, what's that, sir? And he says, say, I am a genius. I apply my wisdom. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay. I didn't really know what that meant at the time. I didn't know what a genius was. Yeah. But he, uh, he said, just say it every day. So I started saying this. I, I have not missed a day, Carly. I believe you. For 50 and a half years. Not one day. So I say that. And I when I flew back home, well, I flew to L.A. and hitchhiked back home to Texas. I asked my mom, what exactly is a genius? Mm -hmm. And she said, well, people like Albert Einstein and Leonardo da Vinci. 
And I said, well, then get me everything you can get me on those guys. Mm. So I got, at first, I got two little books, one on Brownian movement and the other one on uh, his relativity, special and general relativity, a little booklet, a simplified version. And I got another one book by Vasari about da, da Vinci. And in there, he took water from a ditch and put it, filtered it a bit and stuck it on a slide and looked at it under a microscope and then watched the movement of whatever was in it. Mm. And it's called Brownian movement. And um, he said, if we filter down and get enough down to it's very, very filtered and there's only a few particles in there and you move it, you can actually figure out the physics of why they're moving in the way they're doing. But as you add more particles, the complexity becomes geometric and it, it becomes overwhelming to try to figure out the order of where and why everything is moving the way it is. And therefore, we call it random. Claude Shannon said that random behavior is because we have missing information, hidden variables. Mm. And so when he said that, it stuck in my mind. He didn't really believe that it was really random. He just believed that it was too complex for us to understand the order behind it. So he was never satisfied with the, the idea of just probability theory. He just thought that there was complete awareness. Leibniz, a German philosopher, took students and on a piece of paper, they randomly put 20 dots on the piece of paper, but they had to put the sequence of which they were in, but they just randomly put dots, but number the sequence. And then he put a Cartesian uh, graph on there. And then he figured out a mathematical way of describing those arrangement of dots that people thought were random. And when I read that, I thought, I, I, I want to find out the disorder that most people think is in their life. I want to find the hidden order in it. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Boltzmann, who studied thermodynamics and Clausius and others, and Shannon eventually. And I tried to figure out what was the mathematics of the order. And the disorder, what was the mathematics? It came out to what they call factorials. So I started studying mathematics and thermodynamics, and, and I wanted to understand the hidden order in human behavior. And so that's what started the method off at age 18. Mm -hmm. And then another thing happened. I, my, my uncle, when I, before I turned 19, my mom asked me, what do I want for my birthday? And I said, Mom, I want the greatest teachings on the face of the earth, the greatest writings humanities ever created by the greatest minds who ever lived. She said, are you sure you don't want a T-shirt? <laughs> yeah. Do I said, no, I want the greatest teachings on the face of the earth. Because I had learned how to read by then, and I was now starting to want to just be thirsty for, for reading encyclopedias or whatever I could get my hand on. And my uncle, her brother, sent two giant six-by-six foot wooden crates, six by six by six foot wooden crates on a flatbed truck to our home with thousands of books in there. Wow. And I, I unloaded them. I, I, I got a crowbar out and I opened up these crates and just carried all these books and just loaded up my room with these books. And one of the books was The Principles of Quantum Mechanics by Paul Dirac. He's the one that created the idea of particles and antiparticles and pairs of opposites in nature. And when I read that, I thought, wow, if a particle and a particle be conjoined together to make light, which is what his, his premise was, I wonder what happened if I took positive and negative emotions, which appear to be random and follow the same principles. If I put them together at the same moment, simultaneously, can I make enlightenment? So at age 18, that was the beginning of the, 
the quantum collapse because it came from quantum theory. Wow. And and so that's what led to eventually the Demartini method. So in a nutshell, the Demartini method is a series of very concise questions to make the unconscious information that you judge life through and help you see the hidden order in the chaos so you can appreciate your life on a magnificent level that you probably have never experienced ever before. And, and I've been working on questions that all these years to help you see things you never imagined were there that are there and you overlooked. You know, when we, when we are resentful to somebody, we're conscious of the downsides and unconscious the upsides. And if we're, you know, infatuated with somebody, we're conscious of the upsides, unconscious of the downsides. But when we love somebody, we're fully conscious of both sides simultaneously. So what I did is I took what our normal intuition does and created formulations, mathematical formulations on questions that allow us to see what our intuition is whispering, but we keep overlooking because of our subjective biases to help us see the hidden order in the chaos and then reach a point where there's just grace. It's just a, a presence and grace that there's no desire to change you relative to others, no desire to change others relative to you. There's no desire to change anything. Your, your will now matches what is. And there's a, there's a really awe-inspiring moment when there's nothing to fix. There's a, you recognize the hidden order. And, and I, I love helping people experience that deeper awareness. Because it's it's methodically, scientifically, reproducibly, duplicatably able to be done. And I've yeah. just been working and working and working on it for 50 years on how to do that. And, it, in, you know, if you haven't been in a while, you, you'd be amazed at where it is today compared well, to even just a few years back. It just keeps I evolving. Have, I have to do a refresher because all I know is I, I do remember sitting in, in the room and there are times where you are explaining the science and it, it you clearly show that this isn't just you saying, I think, you know, if you did this and this, this is going to make you feel better. The amount of research and science that has gone into your work. And I, I remember seeing there's certain parts of the workshop where you can see people that are, they're confused, but whether you're confused or not about the science and all that's gone into creating the methodology, what is very clear is watching people experience it and go through it. And that moment of grace that you're talking about, the amount of times that I was there to, in a very privileged position to watch people go through that from the sidelines and even myself experience it a number of occasions yeah, it, it, it's amazing. It really is amazing. So I, I do genu genuinely hope that everyone listening does explore that opportunity to work with you or and or read the book. I have to ask, you know, when we talk about really seeing both sides to every situation, I feel like this would be a good segue into the, the topic that we're, we're here to talk about today, which what I do today, John, you know, helping entrepreneurs and executives shape their personal brand, put themselves out there. A lot of the time, what holds them back is the internal fears and insecurities. And, you know, there's probably two main, if I had to break it down to two things, one is them not feeling good enough. So comparing themselves to everyone else and not feeling good enough. 
The other one, which is a huge one, is the fear of rejection, judgment, and criticism. And I couldn't think of a better person to talk to about this topic to just help an individual work through those feelings and perhaps ask themselves questions that they haven't asked themselves to put it into perspective so that they can be more empowered and start to see the start to use it as fuel instead of like you said the thing that holds you back so what would you say to how do we overcome it and will we ever overcome that fear or is it about working with it well i think i had that fear when i started i don't have a fear of speaking in front of people now i have a fear of not speaking (laughs) (laughs) yeah i believe that about you Um, but Maybe I can tell a, a couple stories that might be yeah. helpful. I was at a conference one time. I guess you call it a conference, a presentation. And a lady got up and she froze. Mm. Just went, froze up there. Mm. And I walked up there with a piece of paper in the middle of this presentation. Not asked to. Nobody asked me to. But I just thought I would like to help her. So I just walked up. It was just froze. Everybody's like, going, uh, what do we do? She just couldn't speak. Oh my God. And I figured, okay, it's just a calling inside. I walked up to the stage, walked up there, and I whispered to her for a second. And I said, I rolled up this piece of paper, and I had her look through this piece of paper. And I said, I want you to look at each individual in this audience, one by one. And tell me which ones you're having anxiety looking and seeing in front of you. Because the reason why you're in fear Mm -hmm. is you believe that there's somebody out in that audience that their opinion or their background is beyond yours. Mm -hmm. And you're now focused on what they think about you instead of your message and mission for the people. Mm -hmm. So let's find out who it is. So she scanned it out there. And there's a relatively good size audience. I'm going to say I don't know, 160 people, 200 people. Yeah. You know, it's a big audience out there. And she scanned through that and she almost intuitively knew, knew in advance. And there were two women, only two women out of the entire group that she was intimidated by. Yeah. And she was, and I said, so who is that? She goes, this woman here. And I, I, I didn't want to put her on the spot where she had to, everybody had to hear everything, but I made sure they could kind of hear it because <laughs> I wanted everybody to get the benefit of it. Yeah. So we went out there and I said, so what exactly is it that this woman you perceive has that you don't have? Do you think she's more intelligent than you? Do you think she's more accomplished than you in business? Do you think she's more wealthy than you? Do you think she's got a more stable relationship than you, more socially connected than you, more physically attractive and fit than you, more spiritually aware than you? She says, this lady is definitely more educated and more knowledgeable. And on the topic I feel like I'm speaking and, and it, I want to turn it over to her because she just, I know she knows more. Mm. And I said, great. So you believe that she's more intelligent you in this topic. Mm. And she goes, and I, I said that to everybody. I said, when you're a public speaker, anytime you try to speak on a topic that you don't feel more knowledgeable than anybody else in the audience, you run that risk. That's why Toastmasters always starts with your story. Because nobody knows about your story more than you. Mm. So you never have to worry about not knowing more than any, you know, not knowing as much as somebody in the audience, because nobody knows your audience, your story about than they than they do. You know, yeah. you don't you know it more than they. Yeah. So 
So I said, so what exactly do you think she's knowledgeable about? And she said, well, I think she's more knowledgeable about the business topic that I'm doing. And I said, all right, so that's a lesson to make sure you're talking about something you feel certain about that you have knowledge about. But where do you have knowledge in business that you know is equal? And this is where my method came in. So go to a moment where and when you perceive yourself as having the degree of knowledge she has in what you think she has in your own field. And she goes, I can identify it. Where were you? When were you? When you had that? Great. Now go to the next moment. And I made her look inside herself and reflect until she saw where she had the same degree of knowledge in her area of expertise. Because there's a basic principle of psychology that's ancient. It's been written about all the way back to the New Testament and in the Egyptian writings. It goes way back that you will never judge another individual unless you have whatever you see in them. So if you're resenting to somebody, it's because you're storing a shame and you're dissociating from the shame and too proud to admit you have that. That's why they're reminding you of it. You don't want to face that and you want to avoid that. But if you're admiring somebody, you're too humble to admit what you see in them is inside you, but you actually have that same behavior to the same degree, but you're not acknowledging it. You're too humble to admit it. Mm -hmm. So what I did is it made her realize that she was too humble to admit that she had knowledge that's equally valuable as this lady. And I made her go in there and identify where it was until she saw it. When she saw it, she got a tear of gratitude because now there was a reflective awareness where the seer, the seeing, and the seeing were the same. And she leveled the playing field and she got a tear in the eye. And I said, right now, are you intimidated by that woman? She goes, no. I said, let's keep scanning. And okay, what, what, okay, what about this woman? She is more successful in business and an inspiration financially. Now, is, is this is something, do you know this woman? No, but that's who I, that's who I interpret she to be. Yeah. We don't even know if these ladies are really that way, but this is her yeah. interpretation. That's all it takes is her interpretation. So now let's go to a moment where you have business savvy. Mm -hmm. And she says, well, I don't have the experience I imagine her having. I said, let's go to where you have business savvy. And you said beforehand you were married and your customer was your husband. You were basically satisfying a customer and he was bringing the bacon home, bringing the money home and just, oh, that's an interesting thing. I never thought about that, but that's a business. I was in business. I just had one customer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I successfully done that. We've been married for many years. I said, so you're in a successful business for how many years? She says, well, about 19, 20 years now. I said, okay. So now just, so that's part of your business success. She goes, I got it. I'm not intimidated anymore because we have a great relationship. I said, and so that you've successfully earned money from your husband. He's going out working and you've been providing that and having cash and going shopping and taking care of the kids and everything else. She goes, I'm a very successful businesswoman that way. So I said, all right, so now can you see when you look out at her, can you see that you have your own form and honor your own form of the business success? She goes, yes. I said, right now, when you look, is there anybody else out there you're intimidated by? She says, no. I said, thank you. Um, Right now, as long as you don't see anybody above you, but you see somebody equal to you, then you can speak just like you're having a conversation. So I got off the stage and she knocked it out of the ballpark and got a standing ovation at the end for her courage to stand up and speak. I love it. Now, you just said it really wisely. When we compare ourselves to others and we put people on pedestals, we're going to minimize ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Because we're too humble to admit what we see in others inside us. Albert Einstein said, if you're a cat and you expect yourself to swim like a fish, you're going to beat yourself up. Or if you're yeah. a, a fish, 
you expect to climb a tree like a cat, you're going to beat yourself up. But if you're honor yourself for who you are, for your own talents and your own skills, and you find out whatever you see in others, where is it inside you? You will have no fear of being coming out there with your message. You, when you're up there speaking or going out into the world, if you're worried about what other people think, you're not thinking of your mission and your message and your vision. You're thinking about yourself. You yes. can't grow a business or a brand thinking about yourself. You have to have your innermost dominant thought be your mission of service to other people and contribute to them and do it in a way where you can't wait to get up in the morning and do it because you're inspired to share the message. Yes. If you do, you won't have to worry about what people think about you. Yeah, it's so, and what's so interesting about what you just said is whenever I have a client say, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm worried about what people will say. I'm worried about being judged. And I ask, well, who are you actually worried about? Because you make these big sweeping statements that are you worried everyone's going to say it, X, Y, Z. And when I push them, it does often come down to one, two, three, maybe maximum five people that right. they're afraid of. And sometimes I have one lady who was in her 50s admit that it was her mother that she was still afraid of her mom and, and her mom's opinion. So in that case, is it a matter of them sitting down putting pen to paper, writing out the person, look, listing, how, you know, what are the ways you think that this person is better than you? And you start to recognize why you've put them on a pedestal. And then, like you said, going through that process of elimination and looking at, okay, well, where do I have that in myself? Is yes, I call that owning the traits of the greats. I yeah. call that owning the traits of the greats. So many Amazing opportunities have come in my life and my clients' lives who've taken the time to own the traits, the greats. Because as long as you have somebody that you put above you, you're going to inject their values in life, which is going to cloud the clarity of your own calling and your own mission. And it's going to make you try to live in somebody else's values. And being second at being somebody else instead of being first at being you is never going to give you the power brand that you yeah. desire. You have yeah. to honor yourself as and, and you're not here to compare yourself to others. You're here to compare your own daily actions to your own highest values and your brand admission. If you do that, you're going places. Uh, but I've, I've had people, you know, it, it, see, there's nothing. When I was in Nepal and I met with a Bamba Lama many years ago, I, I had this incredible conversation with him. And he, uh, he whispered to me, he says, no, nothing missing, no, nothing missing. Everybody thinks something missing, but nothing missing. At the level of the essence of our own authentic self, our soul, nothing's missing. Yeah. But at the level of the existence of our senses, things appear to be missing. Mm -hmm. And the things that appear to be missing are, are those things we're too proud or too humble to admit that we have that we see in others. Mm -hmm. And as long as we compare ourselves to others and exaggerate and minimize ourselves or others, we'll never have authenticity. We'll never be able to be loved for who we are from ourselves or others because we're not being who we are. Yeah. Our authentic self has no comparison. Yes. It's original. It's unique. And accessing that, you know, people come up to me and say, well, you know, why don't you do it like this guy and that guy and this guy and the speaker? I don't even focus on that. I focus on my mission every day. Yeah. I don't focus on what other people are doing. I'm just focusing on mastering what I've set out to do. Yeah. And I find that that eventually gets out there. You know, I'm a believer that if you stay with something long enough, everybody else dies out, you end up at the top. You just got to stay with it. <laughs> yeah, I like that strategy. And that, you know, if there's ever anyone, because as, as, you know, 
you you would know you've been behind the the scenes of big events where there's other speakers and it's always interesting to see who actually walks their talk in real life versus you know they show up on stage as one thing and sometimes it's disappointing to meet them in real life because they they don't show up that way in real life or when you meet them in person whereas I know you absolutely walk your talk so when you say that you're only focused on your mission I know that that is absolutely the truth so we've talked about in this instance it's the fear of judgment of others then the other part of it is that rejection piece so if I am going to put myself out there or let's say I'm pitching for an opportunity and all I get is no or you know I I don't get the thing that I'm wanting this is where your work has helped me stay on track because it's enabled me to go okay I didn't get that thing the thing that I thought I wanted but that obviously has a benefit to it so what would you recommend when someone they're feeling a bit I suppose uh, disappointed with the results that they might be getting they're trying they're pushing but they're not getting the yeses that they want what would you recommend how would you frame that rejection piece well you know when you're selling a product service or idea in some form mm. which is a brand yeah um, everybody makes the decision based on what they believe will give them the greatest advantage over disadvantage the greatest uh you know positive over negative in their minds yeah so when you go out and sell something if you ask this question what are the, what are the things that they have as an option to spend their money on mm. sometimes we go out there and we we exaggerate how important what we have is but when you're talking to the customer you need to find out what their need is yeah then then you want to find out what are the options they have to fill that need and if you can't make a distinction a distinction between what you're offering and what other people are offering and you can't present it in such a way where there's more advantage than disadvantage and more value that you're getting than what somebody else is of course they're going to say no why would somebody say yes to something that's not as valuable as what else is out there for them so if if you can't distinguish what's the distinction between you and what the other offers are and I'm not saying compare yourself to them other than go find out what they're offering and finding out and make sure that you have something of equal or greater value, more effective and efficient yeah. uh, and more cost effective. Because th- if you can't make a distinction, they're going to go to the cheapest price. That's a general principle. Yeah. And yeah. If, you, if, if you can make a distinction, you know, when somebody comes to a workshop and they say, well, what am I going to get at your workshop? I'm not going to get at the other workshops. If I can't make those distinctions and I'm charging more than these other workshops, well, of course, they go to another workshop because they don't make it. I haven't made any distinctions. Mm -hmm. But if I can articulate in their values what those distinctions are and I can show them that the decision they make is going to be more advantage and disadvantage to them than the options, they're going to buy. You don't get no. So a no just means you're not caring about the customer enough to articulate what you have to offer in enough clarity and enough value to make a distinction for them to say yes. Mm-hmm. So th- so if they say no, try to get what the objections are and then come back and solve those objections and solve those in advance next time. Do research on them finding out what that is. 
And every time you do, you're moving one step closer towards yes. So a no doesn't mean a failure. It just means that you're, you want to go and keep refining the way you're presenting it and how you're presenting it to make sure that there's an offer that's more advantage, more advantage and disadvantage compared to the others. Mm-hmm. And if you do, great. And you may not necessarily uh, attach. If you see, when we're addicted to, to success, we fear failure. Yes. When we're on a, when we're focused on our mission and see both success and failure as feedback, I, I just got through writing in this new book that I just finished that the second you think you're successful, you're on your way down. It's a depurposing focus. And the second you think you're a failure, you go back to high priority things and go back on track. You grow from that. So that's not a, there's nothing wrong with getting a no. It just means you're one step closer to a yes if you use it wisely. If you beat yeah. yourself up and think it's something about, you know, that you're, you're no good or something like that, well, then you're missing the point. Yeah. So what, what the point is, is to take whatever happens and ask yourself, how is whatever I'm experiencing, whether challenging or supportive, how is it getting me one step closer to my fulfillment of my mission? And then realize that if there's somebody out there that their opinion of you is more important than your own, um, then you're obviously not owning the traits of what you see in them because you still got them above you. So go and find out what those where you have that. I've had people. I had a, a gentleman who is an actor in Hollywood, and he uh, was you know not the biggest name, and yet he was growing. Yeah. But he he'd come to the breakthrough experience, and he did a consult, and he says, "I've got an audition." And it's in front of Harvey Weinstein. Now, you know, Harvey's got some, he's going to jail now because of what's going on with all the women and stuff. But, but at the time, six, seven years ago, you know, going in front of him could make or break your life as yeah. far as a career. Yeah. And so he had an audition. He was scared, I mean, out of the gourd to go and have to go in front of him to do it because he thought if, he, if, he's a, if it's a, a, a poor thing, he's over with. He's washed up. He yeah. over-exaggerated Harvey's empowerment. Mm-hmm. So I said to him, let's do the Demartini method on him. Let's identify what specific trait, action, or inaction do we perceive Harvey having and make a list. So he made a list of 18 character traits that he was intimidated by. And then we went there and identified where he had each of those traits until it was equal. Then we found out what's the drawback of those traits to calm the down of the infatuation of this guy, the power of this guy. And we went through step by step by step all the way through until it was flatlined. It was neutral. It was balanced. And he went and did the audition and he got the part. Yeah. I and he asked Harvey, asked Harvey, what is it that made you decide to pick me? Yeah. He said, you were centered and not ruffled by by my questions and you were just there present. Yeah. And he said to me afterwards, he said, if I hadn't have done the method on it, I yeah. would never have been present. Yeah. But I had leveled the playing field and I realized that his opinion of me is not going to stop me from my mission. Yes. Because his opinion is not greater than mine. As long as we're out there making the people's opinions greater than ours, we've stopped our, our, our objective. Now that doesn't mean negate their opinion and you decide what they need to buy. Yeah. You want to offer that, but you don't want to make their opinion more important than your own in this sense. You want to make them equal. There's a thing called sustainable fair exchange. Mm-hmm. And if you are puffing yourself up beyond people and looking down on them, you're careless. And you're not caring enough to meet their needs. And you're assuming you know better than they do. And that doesn't work. 
And that eventually humbles narcissistic expectation. They're supposed to be buying what you have because it's important. You see people doing that when they're selling and they come up to you and tell you how great they are and how great they are and, you know, and, and why you need to buy. And they're not even asking questions to find out what the needs of the person is. Yeah. So that, that narcissistic, careless projection down on people is non-sustainable. That's why we get humble because we don't make client sales. Yes. And if we go the other direction and we sacrifice for a celebrity and then we go, oh, my God, they're amazing. Oh, I better sacrifice and give away my project or whatever for no, no cost to make sure I don't lose them. Now you've exaggerated them and now there's no income. You're out of business. Mm-hmm. So anytime you exaggerate people or minimize people instead of level the playing field and just honor people and have love for them, you're automatically destroying the brand and the, and the productivity and profitability. But when you actually see that the seer, the seeing, and the scene are the same, and they're not above you or below you, they're not somebody you need to be intimidated by or somebody you need to, you know, look down on or above on, just somebody that you're just caring enough about them to want to meet their needs as an equal. Yes. When they, when you, they feel you're authentic, they feel you care, and they can sense that. And there's an authentic individual that there's a trust factor. Oxytocin goes off in the brain and they feel trusting of you. And then they'll go, yes, I can see the service provision that you have will be more valuable than just buying the product. So that's that fair exchange, sustainable fair exchange from true authenticity is still the biggest brand builder, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and just, just how your, the process and, and the stories you've told just, the power of putting everything in perspective, of finding that balance, of recognizing where we've put other people on a pedestal and really creating more of a centeredness in you know who we are, how we're putting ourselves out there. You've led me to start thinking about this idea of how once we are starting to put ourselves out there, we tend to, and I'm speaking on behalf of myself and my clients, we tend to measure our value and success on how much popularity we gain, how much approval we gain from the audience around us. And one of the things that I often tell people as a compliment to you, John, is I always remember when we were working together, you were as equally excited well, excited might be, not be the right word, but you were as equally dedicated to an audience of five people as you were to an audience of 5,000. And it didn't matter how many people were in a room. That was not what you measured success by. It was about how much you were able to touch them and to impact them. And, you know, when I talk about you walking your walk, that was so obvious that you never measured yourself on, well, how many people are in the room today? If I've got more people in the room this week than last week, then I'm successful. That was never a metric for you. And I think when it comes to personal branding, this is a really important point to make that we put this idea of an audience up on a pedestal and everything that the audience wants or needs becomes our guiding light without focusing on ourselves. So what would you say to that? How do we balance and counteract that want to just measure ourselves on these really not healthy metrics? Well, like I say, anytime you put somebody in a pedestal or a pit, um, you're going to learn the lesson that that's not what works. What putting them in your heart is the only thing that works. So uh, 
I was, there was a lovely lady that came from Australia about a week ago on the ship. You know, I live, you know, you know where yeah, I live. On the world. She was visiting from Australia and she stayed and had lunch for me just just an hour or two, well, about two hours she was on the ship. And um, she made comment as she was leaving. She said, there are some very powerful people that live on the ship. And there are some, a lot of workers and, you know, staff that work on there. I didn't see you treat the superpower people, the billionaires on there any different than the people that worked and served you food and, and took care of things. You said hi and even hugged some people in that. And I said, well, that's because as far as I'm concerned, they're both are equally viable. The people that are doing things for me, I, I need, I don't, if I don't have anybody to delegate to, I'm useless. I haven't driven a car. It's, you remember, it's been a long time since I've driven a car and I, I haven't cooked tonight. I mean, I'm useless out there. I, yeah. I, I, Burn a, I'd burn water. Let's put it that way. If I was, if I was boiling water. So I realized that they're just as equally as important. And so there's a, there, there's not an exaggeration or minimization of the people. There's just people. Yeah. And you're trying to, be, I think that's a, that's a very useful tool to realize that they're, they're equally valuable. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was just t- tonight, I was, uh, getting a, a car service or I guess a transport service uh, give me a ride over to Neiman Marcus's to go and get something to, to shop. I want to get the shirt. And uh, there was a couple in front of me from New Zealand. Yeah. And uh, and I said, I, I, I just spoke to them. I said, so where are you two from? And they said, New Zealand. Right. And I said, I okay. said, uh, Christ Church, well, Wellington, Auckland, where the North, North County, North Island, where, where are you from? Okay. And they say, your nose is New Zealand. And I said, yeah, I've been there 30, 40 times. Yeah. And I said, and, and they said, well, we're from this area, Auckland. And I said, great. We were chatting. And I, we became really close friends in a matter of five minutes. And so I, he gave me his card. The guy gave me his card. Yeah. And he says, when, when I'm uh, coming to New Zealand, which I'll be doing on the ship next year, um, to look him up, I want to I personally take you out to dinner. Yeah. So, you know, you, you never know. I always say a man on a mission or a woman on a mission has a message and a vision and they're just focused on that. Yeah. And I, I, don't, I don't focus on success. I don't promote success or failure. I don't, I, that's not my thing. I'm more interested in, you know, fulfilling a mission and feeling you're doing as Warren Buffett says, when you tap dance to work and you're doing what you love on a daily basis, you're, you're grateful. Yeah. yeah. I've said for years that money without meaning leads to debauchery. But money with meaning leads to philanthropy. Mm. And when you're doing something that's extremely meaningful to you and you earn a living doing that, you love to serve. But if you're doing something that's not meaningful and you're just doing something to make a, a, a living or whatever, and you're having Monday morning blues, Wednesday hump days, thank God it's Fridays and week friggin' ends, you're going to end up wanting to escape and go into the amygdala and, and become almost debaucherous. And a lot of people undermine their wealth potential because they keep buying immediate gratifying consumer items that depreciate in value at the expense of buying true assets that make them masters of economics and contribute. And I see people hold themselves back and fill their house. You know, one quarter of their house is storage for stuff to just fill that goes down in value. And they don't realize that they're not valuing themselves. They're just basically living debaucherously instead of, you know, with a mission. I, I'm a, I like to find 
and do something that is deeply meaningful. I ask people by the thousands, how many people, uh, let's go to a moment when you've had the most meaning and fulfillment in your life. And it's usually when they're doing something that they love doing that is inspiring, that that makes a difference in somebody's life. And somebody said, thank you, you've made a difference in my life. That's that's where you and the world are balanced and fair exchange and you feel you're giving meaning. And that's philanthropic. That's very powerful. And uh, and you can't stop a brand. There's, I, I, I would say if you have an astronomical vision, you'll end up having a global effect with your brand. You have mm-hmm. to have an astronomical vision. An astronomical vision is a spontaneous emergent state inside the human psyche when it's living authentically and pursuing incrementally the highest priority actions on a daily basis to to be of service and do something meaningful. And you can't stop a brand from growing in that state. Not possible. John, I mean, I feel like that to me is the the moment where there's what you just said was everything that everyone needs to hear. And you really are a man on a mission. And I'm so grateful that I, even for the short period of time that I was there to to share in your mission, so grateful for the work that you do, the person that you are. And I know that the time you've spent today in just sharing the stories that you have, I know that that's going to impact everyone that listens. So I feel like that is the perfect place to wrap this talk up. In the show notes, I'm obviously going to to put all of the links uh, to your website, to your social media sites, I know you've also recently released a new book. It sounds like you've just finished writing a new book, so there'll be another one uh, very I've soon. I've done six in the last year. <laughs> oh, oh, prolific. Uh, so I will put all of those in the show notes, and I definitely encourage anyone who's listening, please look up the Breakthrough Experience. I don't know, are you coming back to Australia or are you doing everything online now? We've been doing it online. We're doing a live one coming up in London. Uh, we'll definitely be there. I'm I'm probably going to do a live one 2024 there. Yeah, 2024. Because when the ship comes in, I'm definitely going to do some live things. But yeah. I will probably do something alive then again. I would love well, to. Everyone who's listening, you have to get in that room because, and in the meantime, follow John, look up his work, read his books because if today is an indication of what you are able to gain from just experiencing your words and your wisdom there's a lot more of that in a lot so much more it's hard to really encapsulate how much you do talk about and teach so john thank you so much for making the time to do yes thank you for the opportunity to spend some time again with you it's lovely i hope you enjoyed this podcast If you did, share what you learned and help others find the podcast by leaving a review. If you would like to attend the next virtual class in real time, be sure to sign up to the invite list via carlylion.com or the link in the show notes below. I look forward to having you at the next class.